Welcome to the B Major Podcast with Noah Aronson. I am Noah Aronson. I'm a recording artist, composer, performer, and intentional mover. I create music and interactive experiences to activate creativity in the mind and body. This podcast is a playground for you to explore the intersection of wellness and creativity. My process involves activating the voice by dropping into the body. I developed this method to help me battle depression and anxiety, and now I'm excited to share with you how creativity can be a powerful modality to add to other wellness and healing practices you may have. I call it the Revoice Method, and all of the music you'll hear on this podcast will be a result of this creative practice. Each week, you'll hear interviews with practitioners working in the wellness and creativity space, be guided through meditations, and will be invited into my revoice method. It is my belief that we are all quote-unquote creatives, and when we can activate our creativity authentically, we can all be happier, healthier, be more joyful, we can all be major. Welcome back, B Major friends. I hope this past week was filled with creativity and flow for you. Today, I interviewed Dr. Kathy Malchiotti, who is an expressive arts therapist focusing on the role of creativity in helping with trauma. One of my favorite moments from our interview is her answer to my question about whether it's possible for us to ever be fully healed. Her answer was that we are always in recovery, and I really resonated with that sentiment. It doesn't matter how big or how small the trauma is. We are all working through things all the time. Sometimes it's more present in our lives and sometimes it exists in the background. But if we can see our journey as always being in recovery, as she says, then through awareness and self-compassion, we can develop a consistent practice to help turn our wounds into scars. I think one interesting thing about trauma is that while some of us unfortunately experience it directly, others can experience it indirectly through generational trauma. I'd like to share an example from my family's experience that I hope elucidates this point. When my grandfather was 13, his father, who was a tailor, made him a special coat for his bar mitzvah. He loved this coat and wore it every day. One day, when his family was moving into a new home, his mother noticed that he had left his coat at school. In the scramble of moving, she decided to run to the school to pick it up and bring it home. The problem was that it was the dead of winter, and when she got home, she collapsed on the floor and died. From that day forth, my grandfather was inadvertently blamed for the death of his mother because of his negligence that day. And when his father then remarried, he was treated as an outsider and wasn't even allowed to eat dinner at the same time as the rest of the family. He was shamed and cast out, likely because his father didn't have the tools to navigate his own pain. Growing up, he would play the violin alone in his room, and music became a source of joy for him. When he eventually moved out of the house and married, he continued to play violin to comfort himself. 
when my father and his sister were born. My grandfather had still not processed the trauma of his mother's death and subsequently became an alcoholic and an absent parent. This resulted in a lot of stress for my grandmother, who felt she had to maintain the appearance of a healthy home whilst also trying to deal with two children who struggled with developmental and learning disabilities. Her response, because she too was ill-equipped to handle her emotions, having been a child of the depression, was to beat her children daily. My father grew up with daily beatings and feared being in the house. She would not only beat him in private, but would also do so in front of his friends to further humiliate him. My father and his sister's only solace came from music. Both of them grew up to pursue careers in music. He a celebrated cantor, and she a lifetime chorus singer in the Metropolitan Opera. The times they did have with my grandfather were filled with memories of his love of music, and thankfully this love permeated through the generations. I will pause the story here because as you know, I have had to navigate through my own journey and have also found music to be my pathway towards healing. But I must give honor and credit to my father who, before I was born, spent many years in therapy, which saved him from a lifetime of potential torment and struggle, and I believe also saved my sister and me from experiencing his childhood trauma. While I have had my own struggles, they were drastically mitigated by the healing work that he did for himself before my sister and I were born, and for that I am incredibly grateful. But this is just one story, one story about a boy who had to witness the death of his mother and was subsequently blamed for it, and how that one incident trickled down through the generations. And it's also a story of the power of music and its power to transcend the generations and to provide us with the healing and comfort that we need to weather life's storms. My grandparents, while they were Jewish in a time when that was much harder than it is today, were privileged to not have to experience the Holocaust and were also privileged to be white and middle class in a country that was not too kind to anyone who didn't fit that description. This one story of trauma pales in comparison to the trauma that others experienced around the same time, yet its effect was still real and enduring. Every one of us can find a story like this in our family tree that may or may not still be playing itself out through us in any given moment. And so even if you may not have experienced trauma directly as my father did, there is still a chance that there are moments of trauma in your genetic line that have been passed down to you, and they are now your burden to bear. When we can view ourselves as always needing to be in recovery, as Dr. Malchioti says, then we can more effectively navigate this terrain and can learn how to not be as triggered by these past experiences. And I would argue that creativity can be one of our most profound tools for walking this path. So once again, let's dive into a revoice experience. I'll create music from nothing. I'll play and explore sounds as they want to emerge, doing this in the hope that it inspires you to get into your creativity as you witness the creative process unfold. 
I also invite you to come on this journey with me, to find a place where you can move freely and to try joining with me, opening up your voice and adding your own sounds to what you're hearing. It's a fun exercise in letting things flow, practicing listening into your body and expressing the playfulness that wants to come through you in this moment. Do 
So you can hear how I'm practicing this just start method. I let sounds emerge and then I make choices. A lot of this process is about playing and then making choices based on what I enjoy. And when I follow what I enjoy, I get to experience more joy. It's that simple. I hope that you were able to also experience a little bit of that lightness and a little bit of that joy through this revoice method. Let's now dive into my interview with Dr. Kathy Malchiotti and hear how she uses creativity through expressive arts therapy. How do you access your flow? Where do you keep your excitement? Maybe it's time to let go. Welcome back. I am talking today with Dr. Kathy Malchiotti. Dr. Malchiotti wrote a book called Trauma and Expressive Arts Therapy, Brain, Body, and Imagination in the Healing Process, among many other uh, works that she's created and, and give, gifted our world. Uh, she is an art therapist. Uh, she is a healthcare uh, provider. Uh, and just the list goes on with all of your, all of the different titles and uh, um, accolades that you have. Uh, so I am uh, extremely honored that you came on to this podcast series, and uh, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I just kind of want to jump right in because it seems like the work that you're doing is really profound. And I, I think of um, working with trauma uh, as um, like a, a courageous pursuit. It takes courage to be able to enter into that space um, and know that you are still grounded uh, in your own self. Uh, and uh, I think of that word courage, like the like Brene Brown uses it, that courage is a, is a heart word. Uh, and it's, um, 
that it's not just about like, okay, I'm going to muster up all of my strength to, to go do this, but you kind of learn this uh, resilience, I'm sure, over time. So I'm just kind of wondering about how you've navigated through this field of working with trauma uh, and also staying heart-centered and grounded within yourself. Wow, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think where to start because it's really historical for me. And I think I always realized, because I, I started out, I, 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 let me back up, I identify now as really an expressive arts therapist, which we'll probably get to, what kind of the differences between that and art therapy. But to back up, historically, I started out as an art student, right? So I went to the museum school in Boston, uh, which is part of Tufts University and studied fine arts. But I always felt, even though I was interested in being an artist as part of my identity, and I have retained that, the visual arts in my uh, practice, that it, there was something more to it beyond just creating something for sale, right? And, and, and following your pathway in manifesting images over and over and again for whatever purpose, that there was something else deeper going on. And uh, I didn't know about any connections to the therapeutic value or the fact that at that time there were programs that were starting to form to teach art therapy, right, in graduate school. So I came upon one of those in California and didn't even know what it was, but signed up <laughs> for it to get a degree because I had my BFA and I wanted to, to study more in a master's program. Art education didn't seem quite right but the whole idea of art therapy, but the whole idea at that point was very, very simple. It wasn't as, as complex as it is today because we understand a lot more about how the brain and the body function. So, you know, getting into that, starting to open up those channels really made a lot of sense. And ironically, or maybe not, my first job was to work with children who had witnessed or experienced violence in their lives. Wow. in a domestic violence program in a community within a city. Um, so immediately I was thrown into that work with trauma. And I have to say at that point, I was very naive because we didn't have a lot of information decades ago about trauma. We didn't even think that children were traumatized. Huh. That, that was how simplistic we were about trauma. Now to say that would people cannot believe it, that we don't treat trauma in children, of course we do. Children who have witnessed violence or experienced physical or sexual assault or any number of things that are violating, um, that they have trauma experiences and they also retain those experiences in their minds and bodies. So that's kind of where I started. And as things progressed, <laughs> I kept staying in that field of, of traumatic, um, experience or traumatic loss and grief. I say that too with the idea that now we think a lot of things are the result of trauma. So it probably wasn't as unique as it sounds to have to keep working in that certain dimension for so many decades. Because now we look and talk to people, even if they've come for help about some other concern and ask them about did, you know, what are the things that happened to you in life? You know, have, have, have there been disruptive and distressful things that have happened? And of course, 
and just about everybody that will sit down in front of you or a group, they have stories that are about trauma, that are about traumatic loss, that are about grief and loss that have traumatic roots. Yeah, we all experience yeah. it to some extent. We yeah. all carry wounds uh, and it's not necessarily a matter of like, uh, like much more or, or less. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, some, something that for someone else could be small and trivial would, could be really big for that. Right. Exactly. This is where I argue, I don't know if you've looked too much into the literature, but there, there has been in the past this discussion about two types of trauma, one with a big T, capital T, and one with a small T, but that's all perception. Right. You know, what, what happened to me, if we both had the same experience, we might react to it differently because we're different people. Yeah. And, uh, and it's placing judgment on, oh, well, that seems too small, so you shouldn't worry about it, which, over. <laughs> which sounds like it's an older way of thinking about trauma. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's the interesting thing about the work, too. I mean, to accept when people express things, you know, and I work in expressive ways with people that, uh, you know, what might seem very minor to someone else could mm-hmm. be the major obstacle and challenge in their life right now and it's impacting their body and, and mind in so many ways and from moving forward i mean and that's you're you're really there at that that meeting point i wonder if it's like i think of it because i've never done trauma therapy with someone else or for myself it, like it feels like, like risky to to hold some the space for someone who's who's who like you know what's the experience of bringing that up for someone and then holding it for them uh, in in a sacred container. I mean, what? How, how do we? How do you do that? Um, like w- without you know risking them going you know going too deep into their you know. Well, pain. Yeah, that's a that's a good point because again, many years ago we didn't have any clue about how to go about exactly what you were saying, and you know we were encouraged to have people talk about what what happened right away. Now, not back in the first example I gave you, I was working with children who didn't have language developmentally to talk about things, but they also weren't talking for reasons that I didn't know at the time, that their brains and bodies were so highly traumatized that talk was very difficult for them. If they had been violated in some way or witnessed violence they were holding secrets, which they needed to hold on to and not discuss to maintain their safety. So, you know, as we progressed in our understanding of all this, we started to see that. But also this happens with adults too. Adults who have experienced a trauma may not have language for it either. So, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting to here is now we know how to help people contain things in the session through starting with things that help them calm down and Uh help them relax and give them those expressive tools to calm their body, to relax their minds so that they don't get either hyperactivated. So you get very anxious, you, you know, you feel like your whole body's out of control or you get very withdrawn, which we talk about in trauma as dissociation. Yeah. they don't, you don't feel your body. Both of those are survival skills. Yeah. They're not wrong. They're what the body needs to do and the mind needs to do in the moment. So now we know, I hope, I think most practitioners know, start with that self-regulation. You know, it might be listening, right, to music that helps calm the body. 
or even learning to drum at a certain rhythm. So bringing it to that form of expression, or it might be, <clears throat> you know, using your hands to create something rhythmic that helps you. Con so it's different for different people, what kind of expression might work. But then the second piece is, I think, is the co-regulation. So you're with the facilitator, your therapist, educator, coach, whoever that is. You're with another person. Relationship is key to healing. So being in that relationship with someone who is facilitating or co-creating with you is that other level of calming down the body because we feel calmer when we're in that relationship doing that activity or that experience together. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is you use the arts or creativity as the first step to calm the mind uh, and then it moves into a more traditional sort of talk therapy dynamic. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, somebody may want to talk about, and I always ask them, you know, if you can say what that felt like, what three words or five words might you use to describe it? Or if they have a story to tell, that's fine. But some people, because they're so highly traumatized, don't have that story yet. Because that language part of the brain, we now know if you're severely traumatized, but why whatever happened or multiple events in some cases, the language shuts off as a protective feature. So we have to work back through to that, to the narrative and the storytelling. So yeah. it may happen that there are words for it that you say to the person you're working with. Because I guess the, yeah, the question that I'm, I'm trying to figure out is, can the arts be the pathway to healing in it of itself without? Oh yeah, tradition? I really, I really do believe that. It's not true for everyone because no, nothing is a hundred percent. But there are times when people maybe can express that story through enactment or movement or through sound and music through rhythm, and that may start to change the way they feel in their body, the way they feel more resolved about what things have been distressful in their lives that, you know, and this, this is not an overnight process, but words are not necessarily uh, what's needed all the time. This, this is one of the things I think uh, in trauma work now we're learning for some people telling the narrative of something is important, but for others, there are other ways to express. So we have two forms of communication here, explicit, which is the talk and the language and the storytelling. And what we find in the arts is implicit. It's nonverbal, it's sensory, but that's just this valid form of communication. Uh -huh. and sometimes doing it that way starts to transform the narrative just naturally through the movement or enactment or sound or making of images that have meaning. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Because um, it, it resonates very much with my own personal experience. You know, I wasn't um, so great at articulating my feelings with words when I was a child. I was a hypersensitive child, um, but I played piano for hours and hours a day. Uh, so clearly my relationship with music became my expression tool to, to navigate through all the things I couldn't say with words. Yeah, and I think that brings up an issue that when I speak to audiences, especially, it's interesting, psychiatrists, they'll always bring up this question. Well, so many visual artists had mental illness. <laughs> Maybe they were attracted to what they were doing in order to stabilize, and they did a pretty good job. 
you know, even though, you know, they, they may have displayed disorder or, you know, emotional distress. You're, you're saying that the, those visual artists were using their painting as a way to process through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just didn't have the benefit of perhaps the psychotherapy piece or the medication piece or whatever that other piece might have been. Uh, but, you know, I, we can't assume <laughs> that uh, in the creation of expression is due to mental illness. It is not. I think it's due to mental wellness. It's everybody's striving to be resilient. They're striving to be healthy. We're all on a different pathway. We're all on a continuum of, of that experience. Uh, along those lines, um, you're talking about a pathway towards uh, mental wellness and, and well-being. Like, I don't know if, the, if this is an answerable question, but like, is there such thing as full recovery? Is there, is it possible to be fully healed from something? I think we have moments, but I think we're always in recovery. <laughs> I really do believe that. And a very wise person years ago who worked uh, in the field of mental health, I'll, I'll actually give his name because he has passed due to the COVID um, pandemic. Leroy Spaniel, who was at University, uh, Boston University in Boston, Massachusetts. He said to me once, and it stuck with me, it was, this was probably 25 years ago, that we're all in recovery all the time. You know, we're just always doing the best we can in the moment. And we have moments when we feel whole. We feel like, wow, I think I've reached something here. I, I feel good in my body. I feel good in my mind. I feel good about my relationships. And then things come up. I mean, you know, we're, we're a work in progress. So, you know, that to me was a very releasing kind of statement because we're, we're never completely always perfect. Or right? is that like an argument for kind of always being in therapy? Because um, mm -hmm. like you're kind of training what you said before about resilience, you're kind of training and practicing mm -hmm. uh, just being open to pulling things up from the subconscious uh, and bringing them, I, I call it like bringing the light of awareness to them because it's, you know, if they're, if they're stuck under the shadows, then that's when the demons kind of can feed on them, so to speak. But when you bring it up to the surface and to your awareness, that's the only chance that they, you, you have to actually potentially heal. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that idea of, uh, because we talk about recovery a lot, it's talked about a lot in the addictions world, but to, to know that, you know, we're always in it, we're always, you know, we're, we're beholding to it is somewhat of a calming thing for me to think about. It's also when people that I work with hear that too. It's like, okay, you know, yeah, we're always working on this. We've gotten to a great place with it, but it's always a work in progress. It's not like you get wounded, you heal and then you stop for a while until you get wounded again. Yeah. It's, it's like actually um, recognizing where those wounds are, the wounds that you haven't yet dealt with uh, and just be always working on them so that when life happens, inevitably happens to us, mm -hmm. we just have built, we're building up that toolkit. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's big in trauma work right now is the role of compassion and self-compassion in in the individual. Uh, and when you work with, well, I work with over the last oof, 12 years, military, military who are either combat military or veterans. And oftentimes the ability to forgive oneself is what 
the challenge and the barrier is to the recovery process. And somehow that needs to be addressed. Now it's being addressed in some really unique ways. Some of it's through expression and feeling in the body through the expressive work, through the arts, what that compassion is about. It's also in mindfulness practices, right? And that's been thousands of years, of course, of that kind of work now formalized a little bit and, and integrated in therapy. But it's also part of studies now which have to do with MDMA, which is a drug uh, that's uh, more commonly known as ecstasy, but is now probably going to be approved by the FDA wow. for uh, very, very structured work over three sessions. This, this has been the research uh, with people whose trauma does not resolve. And, and the thing that's reported, there are many things reported from those studies, but one of them that's really compelling is that people are able to get in touch with their self-compassion and forgive themselves and feel that depth of that emotion. And that, in that sense, is the recovery factor that many soldiers I know have not been able to find except through that structured protocol and using that medication and being able to find that in themselves. Yeah, it's fascinating that, you know, this this drug has been used so recreationally, but there mm -hmm. actually could be a lot of uh, wisdom when it's when the container is held and someone knows how to hold that container for a person. That yeah, really yeah. I think those studies are very compelling, but what I like about it is Okay, so if you're traumatized and you, we can remove these symptoms, so to speak, we can help people be less, as I said, anxious, or we can help them feel their bodies again. But we have to replace that with something. There has to be some other sensation in the body. So that whole experience of self-compassion, it's a very powerful re-enlivening re factor, I think, in the body. So I think about that a lot, even though I don't do that kind of work, I'm working with these expressive methods. How does self-compassion fit into that sequence for people? Because it can be a very curative moment for them when it's, they get in touch so, with that. It's so interesting that you're mentioning that because yesterday I was trying to just like research um, how, do, how does someone build up self-worth? Um, because, you know, I, I've been going through my own healing uh, recently and realizing that like some of the pain is around self-worth. And sometimes I put it towards relationships or sometimes I put it towards, you know, you know career. Uh, and then there's like this, this not enoughness that is stuck there. And like you're saying, you know, at first about it, it's acknowledging that in those, those places, but what do we do to, to build more self-compassion? What do we do to build more self-worth? Like what's the pathway there? Um, well, one of the things that we know now too, I think for many years now, we used to always pursue self-esteem as the end goal and, and that that really was the wrong pathway, that people are much happier, doesn't matter what age group you're looking at, if they can feel self-compassion and compassion for others versus self-esteem. Because self-esteem is, is kind of driven by achievement, uh, you know, so your self-worth is in what you accumulate and what you do. We all went down that path. But, and we went down that path with people that we were working with for you know, their own well-being. But it's interesting now that we realize that self-compassion is the more powerful factor in feeling good about oneself, feeling well, feeling whole. But a lot of that's been derived from, I call it, you know, one of the four practices in, in um, expressive arts 
has to do with silencing the body. So silencing partly is that self-regulatory piece of calming it down, feeling relaxed, less distressed, but it's also all the practices that have come for thousands of years that have to do with meditation and mindfulness and those kinds of um, healing factors that have been part of humankind since the beginning. So you're saying that you're saying that practicing those things is sure. what builds self-compassion. Yeah. It's not like, okay, tell yourself this or tell yourself that just practicing mindfulness yeah. and meditation practices is actually what's building up our self-compassion. Yeah. And part of that has to do with, I think one commonality in those practices when you take it outside of, because it has a lot of spiritual tradition, right? But if you take it out and look at it in another way, a lot of what I learned in mindfulness practice was about being curious in the moment about what I was experiencing. That can be fear inducing, but once you get past that and kind of just are curious about every sensation you have or every thought that goes by, that alleviates the fear, ironically. You start to become more comfortable in the moment. You start to be self-observant. You start to, curiosity is related to the ability to play and imagine. And this is the thing that's farthest away from people who are traumatized, the ability to play and imagine. So here I am talking about expressive work. This is one of the hurdles we have to get past with many people. It's how to reintroduce that imagination that they put away because if they imagine too much, it could be traumatizing. Stir up a loop. It actually can trigger the trauma. Right. Yeah. Or playful. And I saw this first in children who had internalized a message of, I better not play because if I do these things, maybe I'm doing something wrong and I'm going to be punished or this makes me more vulnerable to others. No, that's totally not what's supposed to happen in childhood. You're supposed to feel playful. Supposed hey. to feel imagined. Yeah. So then you see these, you know, children as adults years later, and never talked about or the, had anyone try to, or ask anyone to assist them in all their feelings and or what's going on in their minds and bodies. Those are the things we often have to work with in the beginning about it's okay to be playful. It's okay to be imaginative because if you can get curious, you will not be fearful. There are direct opposites. Fear and curiosity are direct opposites. So that's why I think the mindfulness helps with to some extent for some people mm -hmm. is to be able to learn to just be curious about what's going on in the moment, no matter if it's good or bad just watch it with curiosity. It's interesting. You were talking before about how there's often spiritual traditions that are kind of linked with these practices. I, I, I've been working uh, in spiritual communities and communities of faith for a very long time. I write music and compose music for, for uh, primarily Jewish communities. And that's, uh, they use that as their prayer music. And that's been my journey for about 15 years. Um, and I, I kind of was coming to the realization that, oh, religion has been using music as a tool you know, that, that, that like, because they're trying to, it's almost like a marketing campaign. They're trying to convince people that the, the religion is what they want to focus on. And, but that I was like, oh, we should, when we extract the music piece, the music is where the power is. You know, the music is, is actually where the spirituality in and of itself and devoid of all of the, you know, the dogma and all of the, you know, the, the, the people part of it, you know, the music has a real transformative power. Oh, because out of all the ways of expression, music is the 
one, hands down, that touches emotion mm. the most profoundly and the most deeply and the most related to memory or just stirring the body in some way that's incredibly inspirational. And you don't find that in anything else. You find it in the other arts, but you don't find it in the way that it really resonates in the body with music. So, so yeah, yeah. Have you done any explorations in terms of like the science around that? Oh, there are lots of studies in music and amazing studies about how um, it moves our emotions, how it uh, literally, even just listening to music, lights up so many parts of the brain more so than any other form of expression or experience, how it connects us socially. Because even listening to someone playing music, you start to become part of that rhythm. You start to entrain to that. You, if you're singing together, there's that synchrony that happens. So out of all the uh, forms of expression, that's the one that taps the most. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I often feel as a performer um, that like I'm kind of like a magician and you know but I don't understand the magic you know it's just like I'm just there and I don't have to understand it completely I mean there's parts of it that are no never going to be understood really? I, mean, I, I just have been going back and we, I was part of a um, course on hip-hop therapy recently and uh, as as someone knowing about trauma and the brain and the expressive arts because that's not you know my field of study or practice but there's a very sophisticated model out there for doing that now one of the things that i found out in looking back at like why, why are words and rhythms so important in music together in hip-hop therapy you go back to the beginnings we we had music as a language before language so music sound all those things were used to communicate this is what the evolutionary biologists are saying then language started to develop and be more complex so they came together eventually and i think in hip-hop therapy which you know they talk about in evolutionary biology as musa language because <laughs> even though they were two separate things early in our development as a species, that they they've come back together. And I think, wow, that, that's probably one of the reasons why people uh, are finding that so therapeutic to engage in that, to learn to write hip hop lyrics to the rhythm yeah. of music. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, uh, it's fascinating. And so as our interview is wrapping up and uh, it's just, been such a joy to to chat with you. I'd love to actually end with the question that we tried to start with, uh, with which is about how you've navigated through being able as a practitioner to be able to offer empathy and compassion while also um, not getting absorbed in the trauma that you're that that someone's bringing up. Like, how do you stay grounded uh, and centered? Well, I have to say, I think you do get involved and that's okay. When it starts to impact your own health on, on, you know, mental, physiological, spiritual, whatever, we always have to stay grounded in what helps us be expressive and let that flow through us, I think, in some way. So I stay in touch with visual art mostly, but I also participate in, in music. Um, I'm in a drumming group right now. 
I, you know, the pandemic shut down a few things, one of which was theater and performance because some of my backgrounds in that too. And so, communal yeah. music making. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and you're saying that the way that you've stayed grounded, similarly to what we were talking about before of how kind of we should always be in recovery, you, mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. use, you use the creative arts uh, yeah. at, daily, at a daily meditative or wellness practice. Yeah, in some way, ground. yeah. Because I, you know, I, I've, I'm not just in that one visual area, but I, I go through all the different areas. And I, because I believe you, this is just my belief. Yeah, people that are in the different arts therapies will argue this <laughs> because people that are in art therapy think it's visual art that does it. Music therapy, they, and I'm non-denominational. In fact, I'm not denominational about this being monetized in yeah. trainings either, but that's a whole other big issue. Um, I think that you have to touch all the senses in some way. Now, you know, so you may resonate with more with sound or music, but touching all those senses is what's really helpful, I think, in, yeah. in the process of, of staying stabilized, of grounded, of anchored. Thank you for reminding me. We never actually were able uh, to have you explain the difference between art therapy and expressive art therapy. So, would you mind just kind of ending? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Definitely, a because bit I keep about that? running into this. I, I, I keep thinking like, why? You know, people don't seem to understand. So I did train in art therapy. So that to me is one silo. It's the visual art. How does visual art help in health and well-being? Then there's music therapy, another silo. It's all about training in, you know, various forms of music, instruments, singing, the research behind the physiology of music, you know, a lot, a lot of information there. Then there is dance movement therapy, talks about, you know, it emphasizes movement uh, as a, the curative factor. And there's also drama therapy, which, you know, has other variations like psychodrama and other names. Uh, and there's a field of play therapy too, which is actually more integrative because working with children, you have to be more integrative with, with movement, with enact, <clears throat> enactment, with, you know, even art. But the expressive arts, we try to figure out ways based on the individual or the group. How do you integrate sound? How do you integrate movement? How do you integrate image? How do you integrate storytelling? And that piece about silence that I mentioned too. So that's what I'm always constantly trying to help people start with something <clears throat> very basic in rhythm, which could be sound or movement, and moving through that to creating an image perhaps. And the image, interestingly enough, even if it's just a doodle or a little drawing of like, I felt this color blue in this shape. That initiates storytelling. It stimulates storytelling. That's one of the reasons we make images. So it doesn't have to be a work of art, but just that visual tangible item. It might be a drawing, it might be a sculpture, it might be maybe a photograph you took that you have a story about. That continuum, I think, is what's helpful in working through things that are disturbing or distressful that come from trauma. Hmm. So I hope that quick explanation, it's more of an integrative approach than staying in one. One layer. Yeah. Um, for me, um, when I create music now, um, movement 
is a is such a piece of the process mm -hmm. for me yep. not just sit down and do a thing and now this is what music is and this is what movement is it's like the movement is a, is an integrated part of the experience yeah and i think out of all of them even though i said you know music stimulates emotion movement is the thing i often start with in a session because one of the things that happens to people who are traumatized is they get stuck they get frozen and that's the worst thing when we get frozen in our emotions and our distress it's very uncomfortable it's painful it's suffering so to get people moving in some way even if it's just sitting in the chair and and moving your hand or you know we've we've had telehealth now right so doing something mirroring each other attuning in that way starts to break that freeze even in ways that's brilliant yeah so Dr. Kathy Malchiotti, it is such a joy to, to meet you and to learn from you. Uh, you were doing such powerful work in this field. Uh, once again, Dr. Malchiotti's book uh, is called Trauma and Expressive Arts Therapy, Brain, Body, and Imagination in the Healing Process. Uh, thank you again, just for taking the time today to chat with us. And uh, I hope that we can stay connected. Yeah, thank you. That's our show for today. Thank you once again to Dr. Malchioti for sharing her insights and the wisdom that she's obtained through her work in expressive arts therapy. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast and whether you feel you are benefiting from this experience. I'm always seeking to make my offerings more effective and more useful. And so if you have any suggestions on how to make this series stronger for you, I'd love to hear them. We read your comments and your emails. Drop us a note on Instagram or via email so we can connect with you directly. Whether you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also visit our B Major website to listen and learn more about each of our guests. We have a lot of programs coming up in addition to this podcast series in partnership with our guests, seminars, workshops, and coaching that all serve to help you reignite your creativity. Make sure you're staying connected with us on all our social media platforms and are signed up for the newsletter to stay up to date with our latest offerings. If you are enjoying this series, please share it with your networks or anyone you feel would benefit from what we're putting out there. My goal is to remind everyone that we are all creatives. We can all benefit from your creative voice. You deserve to be heard and seen, and the world needs you right now more than ever. In this way, we can all be stronger, be lighter, be healthier, and of course, be major. See you next week.